Welcome to another Footnotes episode of Infinitely Prefer a Book. In these shorter episodes, I talk about my reading life and what it's making me think about. Today, with Earth Day coming up, I'm going to share what I've learned from some books in a gardening or farming theme. I'm also going to share a recommendation for some favorite gardening TV shows. One of the things that has struck me about the culture of the current part of the world that I am living in right now is that everyone seems to have a vegetable garden, no matter their age, no matter their situation. Um, At work, it's common to arrive at a meeting in the springtime or summertime and for the pre-meeting chatter to be around how well everyone's garden is doing. In fact, just this week, someone was talking about how a cold spell we're having was potentially going to affect their peach blossoms. So it's just really common. And I have been super lucky to be the beneficiary of overabundant garden produce for my coworkers. So it's really interesting, but it's a change from where I was living previously. In addition, I'm living in the heart of the American commodity farming. Uh, when we travel throughout the state, we're surrounded by corn and soybeans. I have a coworker whose husband is a 100% full-time farmer, and that's how they earn their living. Um, many of my coworkers are connected to farming, either when they where they grew up or through friends or relatives. And so um, it's kind of part of the culture here, and it's something that I had known nothing really about. Um, so I'm kind of fascinated when I get a glimpse of it, and I kind of feel Um, really dumb that I don't know some of the basics about farming. Um, So when a year or two ago, I saw just after we had moved here, I saw a book um, called This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm by Ted Genoways. I put it on my to read list, hoping that it would lend some insight to understand my neighbors and my community better. Um, But I hadn't gotten around to reading it. And another book that has been on my to-read list for tons of years is called Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. It's a very popular book, um, probably about 10 years ago. So one day, it was a snowy day in January, um, just this year, I downloaded Kingsolver's book from the library on the Libby app uh, as an ebook, and it was just the perfect escape. It brought like sort of the hugo level up to 10 <laughs> to be reading about gardening and the bounty of summer, all snuggled under the covers while I was freezing outside. Um, so that was kind of a fun part. She Kingsolver has a very humorous writing style um, that I mostly enjoyed. There were definitely some preachy parts that kind of was like, that's a little over um, strong hand there with, with that. Um, but the setup is that Kingsolver moved her family of four from Tucson, Arizona to some family owned land in Virginia in order to do an experiment where they eat only locally grown food for one year. And a lot of the a lot of the food they grew themselves in um, a giant vegetable garden they planted, and they had fruit trees that were already on the property. Um, they also raised chickens for eggs and turkey for meat. Um, so it was kind of they were really small scale farmers during this experiment. In addition to this book being a journey to warmer weather during a cold time, um, it was also a journey back in time um, to the 2000-somethings, the 2000-aughts, when community gardens were super sexy and books about people living radically for a year just seemed to be popping up all over, Um, even, you know, kind of they were in their prime, I guess. Also, just a time when the local food movement was seen as the way we're going to end global warming. just by eating locally and shopping at farmer's markets. And it was just 
we thought we we knew what we what it was going to be. And now it's just kind of funny to see that same mentality from 10 years in the future. Um, I, I feel like we've dropped a lot of that ma- mantra and it hasn't really worked maybe the way we thought it would, whether or not um, that the farming and food industry it has just so, too many lobbyists that the local industry isn't going to rise from or, or can't get a foothold. But I, I think it's something deeper than that. Um, I just see other food movements popping up. And again, it's just kind of watching the fads w- w- go through. Um, some, the, the food movement now that I'm seeing a lot of is eating plant-based because that's going to have an effect on the environment because meat does um, take so much resources from the environment to grow. Um, and, I, you know, of course, while farmers markets have gained steam, plant-based eating requires access to fruits and vegetables all year round, despite the weather. So, um, you know, we're seeing people eating avocado toast in New York City in the middle of winter. And while that might be organic, um, it's not local. Um, King Solver is a big proponent of organic eating. And I think we've definitely seen an increase in access to organic foods, but we've really dropped off the emphasis on the local part. Um, King Solver concludes in her book that eating 99% local is a challenge, but totally doable. And we should strive for that as a goal. I come to a different conclusion than that. Um, It seems that most people don't have the 40 feet by 60 feet plot, she says, you need per person to grow their own food. And most people don't have the time to maintain that kind of land or to can all the food they need for winter like her family did while keeping their full-time jobs. Yes, she and her husband did have full-time jobs, but she has a career as a writer and he has a career as a professor, much more flexible jobs than a lot of people who are clocking in and out, who are working shift work, um, just doesn't seem reasonable. And also most people don't have that kind of land. We have a lot of urban dwellers who are living in high rises. And as much as community gardens can produce produce, it's going to take a lot more work if we're going to feed entire cities that way. And what about all those places like Tucson where she conveniently left for this experience? And she mentions that in the book. I mean, those places don't have enough water to grow all their own food. So are we going to abandon those places? How would we then deal with the crowding in areas that have the most growing potential? And what happens if the region you live in year after year has poor production and drought? Um, We clearly need an infrastructure system in order to feed everyone consistently. And I don't think it's reasonable to rely 100% on a local food market. But I do think it's a good thing to support local businesses and producers to invest in our communities. So while I liked the book, I thought her ideals were a little lofty. And it was kind of interesting to see it 10 years on to see if we've really adopted those. And I, I would say most of it we haven't. So for a little bit of balance and for a different perspective, I decided to check out the book I mentioned at the top of this, This Blessed Earth by Ted Genoways. Very different perspective, completely different kind of story. The Hammond family highlighted in the book are fifth generation conventional corn and soybean farmers in Nebraska. Um, A large portion of their incomes come from growing seed crop for DuPont Pioneer. So um, fully invested in conventional GMO farming. Um, Full disclosure, a good portion of my childhood in college, heck, even my wedding, was paid for by Monsanto um, via my dad's salary and benefits. In fact, I still eat out on their dime sometimes, so... Thanks, Dad. Uh, but anyway, Jenna Ways tells the story of how corn and soybeans came to be commodity crops and goes into a fair amount on the economics and policy behind it. Um, interesting. It was kind of very brainy and a little bit hard to absorb, but I kind of, it was in- very interesting 
to hear the history of it. I want to, I don't want to dive into the economics and policy too much, but I will try to give a short history. Um, maybe for those of you who are uninformed, maybe some of you already know. A large part of our current production of corn and soybeans is due to the fact um, is because of Henry Ford. He wanted to sell farming equipment to farmers and he realized that he had to find a way to also be their customer. So he invented, invested in um, research, exploring the various ways that plants could be used as building materials, fuel, etc., and motors and cars. Um, so they discovered that soybeans could be used for plastics and industrial lubricants. Um, and uh, in fact, according to the Iowa Corn Growers Corn Grower Association, just you know, sweet corn off the cob or frozen or in cans um, for eating straight is only one percent of the U.S. production um, of corn. And even the field corn that they harvest that they grow, like, I guess they grow it longer. So it's kind of hard and dry. Here I am not a farmer not understanding it, but um, only a small percentage of that even goes to products for human consumption, the products like um, corn syrup or something, but most of it is going to actual chemical um, applications. So whether it's fuel, whether it's um, like they mentioned products that go into like cosmetics, like shampoo and stuff, um, different things. So very, very interesting. Yes, a lar- some part of it goes to animal feed as well, but even that was not even a full 100%. After World War II and chemical companies were no longer producing explosives, they turned to making fertilizers and gradually started owning more of the agriculture business in the U.S., as demand for meat rose following um, World War II rationing, corn became in high demand as a feed crop for livestock so they could get more meat more quickly. And just as the world has become more interconnected, it's these co- crops really have become commodity crops and they've been used as bargaining chips in foreign policy. In the 1970s, the government, the U.S. government encouraged farmers to overproduce grain that then they sold to the Soviet Union and China basically as a way to control their food supply and making them dependent on the U.S. for food. Um, This actually made a lot of the big grain companies really rich and promoted, again, farms that specialized in these what we call now monocultures or the single crop. It also gave a lot of power to large grain companies to artificially set prices. Um, So that's really interesting, just kind of how much the farmers are at the mercy, not only of the government, but also these grain companies um, and other companies to set prices. The grain companies could um, overproduce to drive down the prices if they want to, and then also hold on to reserves to drive them up again. Um, And the farmers are kind of stuck there in the middle. They just, all they can do is grow um, and then try to hope that they can sell their crop. Then after the government had encouraged farmers to like overproduce so they could send um, food over to Russia and China, President Carter decided to cut off the Soviet Union's grain supply um, through an embargo. And so, of course, they just found another way to get their grain, um, including buying buying from foreign subsidiaries of American grain companies. So they were buying South American grain, um, for example, from a U.S. company. Um, and so the country found themselves in a farm crisis where the price of grain was so low they could because the, they had so much supply, they couldn't pay their bills um, and they their collateral became worth less actually than their loans. And so banks foreclosed on them. And so you see a lot of consolidation of farms at that time. 
One of the ways farmers tried to combat this was just basically acquiring more land and producing more. Um, that also got them into more debt. And it also increased the supply. So that didn't help with the supply demand thing. So that was just one of the things that I learned from this book was that it's a central point of the challenge. And it's how do you balance it? Um, one of the things is when you do well because of weather or other factors, it's likely that your neighbors are going to do well as also. So um, then there's extra, so the supply goes up and so your prices fall. So even though you've produced all of this product, you still aren't getting um, top dollar for your work. So, you, so you're not getting the full impact of everything you put in. But what you really kind of want, which is unfortunate, is if for you to have a really bumper crop and then for your neighbors to somehow have locusts come in and eat all their crops so that you can get top dollar for all the work that you put in through the year. This book describes the balance that the Hammonds walk to make their farm profitable. It's hard work, very scientific. A lot of it is out of their hands. I mean, they're doing so much math and they're measuring the amount of rain and the days of sunshine so they know when to harvest. The beans have to be an exact moisture level um, to be able to harvest. It's really um, quite detailed and it takes quite a lot of skill to do. Um, they discuss the effort it takes to raise grass-fed, hormone and antibiotic-free beef, including um, not treating cows who might have a, a small infection until the last possible moment when they when they absolutely have to because then they can't sell that cow as antibiotic-free. So it's kind of that double-edged sword of you want to t take care of your animals, but if as soon as you were to treat them, um, then you can't sell it for the same cost. The Keystone XL pipeline was set to go through their land. They discussed the concerns about contaminating their water supply um, and the idea of an imminent domain. So that was really interesting. Um, at one point in the book, the rising generation of farmers talk about their conflict with wanting to improve farming practices, um, but just and then all the hurdles that there are to overcome, and they feel that pro-organic activists really don't understand the history of corn and soybeans. It goes back to the 1920s and all the equipment, materials, infrastructure, and policy is built to support that. The equipment and infrastructure isn't multi-purpose. You buy it for a specific type of um, crop. And so a lot is invested in this business. They've gone into a lot of debt. Um, industries depend on the products. I mean, most of these things aren't even going to food. So it's not like... Um, you know, just not buying GMO products that you eat is really going to make an impact. A lot of these things are found in non-edibles and you just really can't change this industry. I was really impressed by just the complexity of it all and um, that it's really an, an ecosystem. And if, and if we want to make improvements globally, um, we really need to have all the players on board to be thinking about ways to make improvements for our, for our planet. So if you have any experience with farming or gardening, either conventionally or organically, um, and just want to enlighten me or make a comment, you can reach out to me at infinitely prefer a book on Instagram. Now, just for some fun, I have a recommendation for those of us who like to imagine themselves as gardeners, uh, but whose energy level is more couch potato, um, or maybe you do like digging in the dirt and want some inspiration. There are two shows on Netflix that I am loving right now. Both are produced in the UK. 
In fact, I found these um, last spring when we were still getting snow um, on Easter Sunday last year, which I believe was the end of April. Um, it was quite dreary and I was just dreaming about spring actually coming. Um, the first one is Big Dreams, Small Spaces with Monty Don. And I love this. He goes and helps home gardeners design their garden and gives them tips. And then um, they make the plan and he comes back and he celebrates with them in their garden. And some people spend a lot of money and have bigger transformations. Others are more recent. I love the show because we used to own a house that had like a postage stamp size yard that faced north, had giant trees that shaded everything, and we couldn't get a thing to grow. Um, I like to think, sort of think now about what I would do differently in that space because I am familiar with that space, even though we don't own the home anymore. Um, or just like in general, what would I do when I, what would I want in my yard? Um, just a, a side note, um, in the UK, a garden is what we would call a yard in the US and then sort of encompasses all the plants, lawn, hardscaping, anything in that plot. Um, whereas a vegetable patch, which is what I think of as a garden um, in the US, is called an allotment. So um, some people on the show incorporate allotments into their garden or use the space entirely for an allotment. But when they say their garden, it's basically anything in their yard. Um, but Monty Don is just very warm and supportive. He has some other shows on Netflix, which I haven't checked out yet, um, but could be very interesting. The other show that I've actually seen all the episodes for that are available, unfortunately, it's super fun. It's called Love Your Garden with Alan Titchmarsh. I just love British names. They're so awesome. And this one is more of a makeover show where they come in with a crew and they make over the yard for someone who has had a rough time, like with cancer or um, disabilities or they're, you know, had a death in their family or something like that. Um, again, I just love getting ideas for my dream garden in my head, but, um, it's really, really inspiring to see the, the different things that they do. So those are my recommendations. That's big dreams, small spaces, and love your garden with Alan Titchmarsh. What are you growing in your garden, yard or allotment? Um, reach out to me at infinitely prefer a book on Instagram or at infinitely prefer a book at gmail.com. And don't forget the book we're reading this month is Salt Houses by Hala Alyan. 